Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, Don Hallway tells the story of the final years of the Western Roman Empire and the downfall of Rome itself from the perspectives of two former comrades on the battlefield, the Roman general Flavius Stilicho and Alaric, the king of the Visigoths. The book, At the Gates of Rome, The Fall of the Eternal City, A.D. 410, is published by Osprey, and it brings Mr. Hallway, who is both a historian and an illustrator, to our show now. Welcome. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm well, and I'm glad that uh, we could have you, because this is fascinating <laughs> stuff. Uh, but you, you begin your book in the late 18th century, 1,300 years after the fall of the Roman Empire. Why then? <laughs> I think uh, I wanted to start it out with a tip of the hat to Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I don't think anybody can write on that subject without making a reference to him. And I also wanted to draw the comparison between the British Empire at his time, which was uh, still up and coming, uh, to the Roman Empire, which he was writing about, which was in its years of decline. I wanted to draw the parallel between the two. But actually, the, the British Empire was going through problems as well. And didn't Benjamin Franklin say he would furnish Gibbons with material for writing the history of the decline of the British Empire? <laughs> he that did. Things were, things were a little bit up in the air at the time. It was uh, 1781, I believe. Mm. Was... Uh, Gibbons, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, the first attempt to do a complete history of, of that, of, of what happened? I don't think it was the first attempt. Um, there had been plenty of plenty of historians before him who had written about the fall of Rome, but his was certainly the most complete. And he also uh, tried to go back and use the primary sources. He didn't try to repeat what other people had said before him or historians had said before him. He wanted to go straight back to the uh, sources as close to the event as possible, which is what I try and do as well in my book. Well, you, you've drawn from, upon ancient Roman, Greek, and Byzantine accounts. Um, I hope that the Byzantine accounts were translated. <laughs> or do, <laughs> they or do you speak Byzantine? Uh, <laughs> well, they spoke, they spoke Greek, so there's a difference between the Greeks and the Byzantines, but not in matters of language. In in retrospect, how accurate did Gibbon's telling of the events turn out to be? I think he was he had his he had his biases. Uh, he was a man of the Enlightenment and uh, not a foe of religion, but a disparager of religion, uh, of organized religion and Christianity as well. He largely put the blame for the fall of Rome on Christianity, which uh, I didn't necessarily agree with, but you know he he's entitled to his opinion. Uh, he was he collected uh, almost all the sources that I gathered from my book. He had already gathered for his, and uh, of course he was writing in that flowery uh, 18th century kind of style. When you know why use five words when you can use ten words, and you have to sort of filter that out a little bit. But uh, I, I found him to be fairly accurate. Well, you note that in the years since its publications, historians have come up with over 200 reasons why the Western Empire fell. So why does this story remain something of a mystery? Uh, after all, Gibbon wrote six volumes, thousands of pages. Was there still more material to be found? <laughs> well, everybody has their own pet theory of, uh, of why it happened. I think historians have come up with like 200 reasons why the Roman Empire fell, and they're still counting. I mean, everything from plagues and currency problems down to lead in the pipes. But, but uh, 
you have to take all those and sort of measure them against the events and, you know, come up with your own conclusions. And why was he interested in the subject in the first place? Gibbon? Hmm. He was at a sort of, uh, when, when the inspiration took him, he was kind of at a, uh, a little bit adrift in his life. He had been a minister of parliament and uh, was having uh, difficulties with his father. He had a broken romance. He was in the military and did absolutely nothing there. And uh, he was he embarked on what they called a grand tour in those days of the continent. Uh, a lot of upper class young men went on trips like that to, you know, broaden their experiences. He was in uh, he was in Rome on his trip. That was a standard stop at the time. Rome at that point was uh, coming out of centuries of decline. Uh, it was the ruins of Rome were even more ruined than they are now. They've been restored a good bit since then. But uh, as he was walking in the forum, he was just overtaken with this uh, sense of history. And uh, he, for a couple of days, and where he was walking, where Caesar once stood, and you know the great figures of Roman history, uh, he just it, it really captured his imagination. But at the same time. Uh, he didn't think the time was right for the for such a book because the, um, the British Empire really was on an upswing at that point, and uh, he didn't think it would be you know relevant. A lot of readers wouldn't be interested. And then a few years later, things had kind of turned around with the American Revolution going on, and a lot of the British people were wondering if their empire was teetering the way the Romans had. And uh, he decided that now is the time to write the book, so he launched into it. Well, there were problems in uh, what became the United States. There were uh, there were uh, battles against the French. The, the British were having a bit of a difficult time. Yeah, at the time, they were basically fighting a world war. They were fighting not only France, but Spain and uh, the Netherlands were also uh, in this fight. They didn't have as much to do on our side of the pond as the French did. But uh, it was pretty, really Britain against the world for a while. And, uh, you know, there was a at that point, of course, there was no idea which way it was going to turn out. I mean, Britain had been they were an up and coming empire. But, you know, people were worried if they had bitten off more than they could chew. You note that although the French proverb from the year 1190 that Rome wasn't built in a day was quite accurate, it took little more than a single generation for the 800 year Roman Empire to fall. That's correct. I, you can uh, you can sort of pick your own dates, I suppose. Uh, Gibbon chose the uh, the reign of Emperor Commodus, which was well before the time that I saw. Uh, Commodus was a, a would be gladiator. He was he was played by uh, uh, I can't think of the actor's name. He was the Caesar in the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. That was Commodus, uh, and Gibbon took his reign as the downfall. Uh, the beginning of the downfall, the beginning of the end. Uh, I didn't go that far back. Uh, I started with the Battle of Adrianople, which mm. was in 378 AD, uh, basically a generation before the fall. You note that during those critical final decades, while Christians and pagans, legions and barbarians, generals and politicians were squabbling over uh, the uh, dwindling, you would say, scraps of power, two men, former comrades on the battlefield, rose to prominence on opposite sides, and they are at the center of your book. Uh, 
Am I pronouncing his name right? Flavius Stilico? I, I pronounce it Stilico, Alaric and Stilico. Stilico. Uh, and, and, and Flavius or Flavius? Flavius. Uh, he was the supreme military commander of Rome. The other person was Alaric, who was the king of the Goths. And although uh, I'm always unclear about that, was he king of the Goths or the Visigoths? Because there were two major Goth groups, weren't there? There were, but there, the, the distinction between them wasn't really made until about 100 years later. After the fall of Rome, you had the uh, Visigoths, which were the Western Goths. They were living in Spain at the time. And then you had the Eastern Goths, the Ostrogoths, who were living in Italy. They were, they were two clearly delineated people. But in our time period, Goths were Goths. I don't think they even made the distinction. I mean, there were separate tribes of them, but they weren't divided up uh, into Eastern and Western. The Romans made a distinction between the forest Goths and uh, the plains Goths, I believe it was. But they didn't make the distinction between Eastern and Western. That didn't happen until decades or a century later. Is Goth the source of the word Gothic? I believe that it is, yes, but... Uh, that comes uh, much later. Yeah, and has much different meaning these days, too. Now, uh, Alaric was, had been an ally of Rome. What happened? Well, he had a strange off-and-on relationship with Rome. Uh, when he started out uh, as a young man, he was actually a bandit chief. And uh, the way he and Stilico first met was Alec was, a, was the bandit leader and Stilico as a young officer was sent out to uh, put him down. And uh, Alaric always found a way to uh, get out of these situations. They usually turned out better for him than, uh, than he was before. He had an amazing talent for, uh, for advancing himself uh, and exploiting Rome's, Rome's varying sympathies towards the barbarians. And you describe Flavius Stilico as the man behind the Roman throne. Who was the emperor at the time, and uh, how, imp how important was his role in the story that you tell? Well, in the course of the book, he starts out, as I said, as a young officer. He was serving, he served uh, three emperors or possibly four, depending on how you want to count it. When he was first starting out, he was a bodyguard to uh, Emperor Flavius Valens, uh, who was the emperor who was killed in the great catastrophe at the Battle of Adrianople. Uh, mm -hmm. So Stilicho was his bodyguard, but he wasn't bodyguarding him at the time, apparently, because Stilicho was one of the few Romans who actually escaped that battle alive. I sort of surmised that he was left behind in the city of Adrianople to guard the uh, imperial treasure that was there at the time. Then when Valens was killed, uh, Emperor uh, Flavius Theodosius uh, came in and took over as Eastern Emperor. So uh, still became his son-in-law, which always helped service. We're having and, a bit of a problem with our connection uh, here. Was uh, a military commander. Oh. We're, we're having a problem with our I, connection. I Did you do something? Fine. Did you move or? Nope. Oh no, no, no! I'm just sitting here. No. Okay. Well, I it sounds better talk. now. But <laughs> could you just repeat what you said? Because what we heard was mostly on the down, down, down. That's probably the most intelligent comment I'll make all day. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure where you lost me. 
Uh, well, we were talking about the, the various part. emperors. He actually worked for three emperors in, in the span of his military career? He did. He started out serving Flavius Valens, who was the emperor killed at Adrianople. And uh, then he ended up serving the, the next emperor, the next Eastern emperor, Flavius Theodosius, who uh, uh, sort of took him under his wing. Uh, Stilicho actually became Theodosius's son-in-law which always helps to, uh, you know, your rise in the service of the Romans. Romans. Uh, so he rose up, became second in command, and eventually on Theodosius's death, uh, when the power passed to Theodosius's sons, Arcadius and Honorius, the, uh, Stilicho was basically appointed, if you believe the, uh, if you believe the, the tales, uh, Stilicho was appointed basically the guardian of the young emperors Arcadius and Honorius, Arcadius in the east and Honorius in the west. And a lot of the trouble that happened in the succeeding decades was because not everyone agreed that Theodos or Stilicho should be their guardians. And uh, a lot of people thought that he was taking more power than he should be having. Uh, and a lot of them resented him for that. What's the significance of the, the word Flavius? Because it appears in all sorts of different ways <laughs> I think, throughout the story. I think, half, I think half the Romans in the book are named Flavius. It was, it or Flavianus was, uh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, correct. Any version of it. It was basically their version of the word of the name John. I mean, it was a very, very, very common name. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it was, I noticed that as well. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Don Hallway, H-O-L-L-W-A-Y. His latest book, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, did. His latest book is At the Gates of Rome, The Fall of the Eternal City, A.D. 410, published by Osprey. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Didn't the Greek philosopher Plutarch note that the key to Rome's success was that it assimilated the people it conquered and, and Romanized them? Uh, he did note that, and that is sort of the theme of my book, that the, uh, the, we were talking about the reasons why Rome fell, uh, you know, all the myriad excuses that uh, people have come up with why Rome fell. And to me, the, the reason the city fell is obvious because the Goths broke in and, you know, uh, sacked the city. Uh, I don't think you have to make it more complicated than that. But the story of them uh, is really the uh, really the core of the story. As you say, assimilation was the was the key to the whole thing. After the Battle of Adrianople, which the Goths won, I mean, total victory, total victory. They basically came into the empire unconquered. I mean, for them, it amounted to a successful invasion. Uh, whereas before that, Rome had conquered people, the Gauls, the Celts, uh, the Britons, and made them Roman. It assimilated them. Uh, you know, they, they had to live as Romans, and then they were, I mean, they were granted citizenship. But the Goths never got that because they came in as conquerors. And in spite of the fact that Theodosius, whose army had been decimated uh, by the Goths, uh, he took them into his service as mercenaries. And that shows that they wanted nothing more to, than to be Roman. They wanted to serve Rome and even serve in the army, uh, but they were never they were never treated as equal citizens, and um, they they ended up exploiting that difference. I think they resented it for a while, and then uh, after a few years, particularly when Alaric came along, he was smart enough to take advantage of that situation and uh, and use it to his advantage. 
Well, Rome had conquered Gaul in the Gallic Wars uh, some hundreds of years before. Um, had Was it that the Gauls weren't as strong as the Goths, or had Rome changed in the interim? Well, the uh, the Gauls were the Gauls and the uh, Goths were two different peoples. Uh, the Goths were a Germanic tribe. They were actually you could think of them as proto Vikings. They actually originated up around the uh, the Baltic Sea and migrated down towards the south under population pressure. That was all happening uh, for several hundred years, and they actually had they had interactions with Rome, but. Not to the extent their territory was never conquered. I mean, Rome came up and drew the line at the, at the Rhine River and the Danube River, which the Rhine River flows to the North Sea and the Danube flows to the Black Sea. But their headwaters are almost, you know, they're almost touching. So the, the empire set that as more or less the northern border and the Germanic tribes were on the other side of that. So the Goths uh, didn't have as much interaction. They were never conquered by Rome. Uh, and of course, they weren't conquered by Rome when they came into the when they came into the empire either. So they remained an unassimilated nation within the the imperial borders of Rome, but not really uh, assimilated. Uh, I mentioned sure. Plutarch. Didn't he become a Roman citizen? How much yes, of, of uh, his writings uh, were yeah. about the situation in Rome mm-hmm. at the time? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was. He's predates most of the references I use from him. He was a famous writer about the Germanics, but he was actually predates the book by, uh, you know, a couple hundred years, Hmm. but his insight into what the, how the German tribes lived in those days was valuable because, you know, time passed more slowly back then. If you had a German from the second century and a German from the fourth century, uh, there wasn't, you know, it's not like they changed overnight or anything like that. Their, the lifestyle stayed the same. They were all barbarians as far as the Romans were concerned. But as far as the citizenship, uh, every every adult male in the Roman Empire by this time was considered a, a citizen, a citizen of Rome. It didn't matter if you were a Gaul. It didn't matter if you were a Briton. Or, or if you Celt. accepted it or didn't accept it, because it, it wasn't always voluntary, obviously. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, it, it was extended to conquered peoples as well. Uh, Rome basically offered them, you know, either the sword or citizenship, and most people chose citizenship. That's what the Goths were after when they came down uh, to the uh, Danube River in 376. They wanted to be members of the empire. They were trying to escape the Huns who were hmm. running roughshod over the eastern steppes. And uh, they, the Goths just wanted to come across the river and come under Rome's protection against, against the Huns. And uh, they were allowed to come across the river, but they were terribly abused. Uh, they were basically penned up on our reservation and fed dog flesh hmm. to eat. And uh, actually, a lot, of their, a lot of their sons were taken away and either made slaves or started the assimilation process with them, tried to groom the... Uh, groom the sons of the noble Goths to make them more Roman so that as the generations turned over, uh, you know, the Goths would become Roman. I was uh, amused to discover that uh, Plutarch's Life of Alexander was written as a parallel to Julius Caesar. So uh, Rome was at the center of many people's thinking in those days, at least uh, the intellectuals. Yeah, it was. I mean, everybody knew, 
everybody knew uh, that Rome was was the great power. Uh, we talked about when my book starts in 1781, but I actually re rewind the clock even further back uh, to the first sack of Rome, uh, which was uh, well well before the birth of Christ. That was done by the Gauls, who uh, came down and uh, and actually did sack the city. And I thought there was a lesson to be learned there that. Uh, uh, would be good for readers, but it's a lesson that the Romans themselves forgot. And uh, I thought that was a good place to actually start the book. Well, in many ways, isn't this a history of Rome uh, that is also the story of the so-called barbarians who looked on Rome with longing either to conquer and pillage or to join and gain protection? It is. It is a story. You know, the, my focus is on the Goths who, as I, as I say, wanted nothing more than to become Roman and were never really given the chance. And uh, there was an increasing amount, I think, of resentment after the Battle of Adrianople. There was certainly resentment against them for having won that battle and killed so many Romans. And I think that a lot of anti-barbarian sentiment counted against them. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why they were never offered citizenship. Uh, Rome was happy to have them serve in the legions and get killed serving Rome, but not so big on extending citizenship to them. So the book really is kind of the story of how they start from nothing. And under Alaric's leadership, they become the, they become the tipping point in the balance of power between the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. After Theodosius died, uh, well, the empires had been split for some time, and he his attempt was to unite them uh, with his elder son, Arcadius, ruling in the east, and his younger son, Honorius, ruling in the west, but with Theodosius over top of both of them. And that would have been the first time that the, the two empires would have really been united in several generations. But after Theodosius's death, things went their separate ways. Uh, the east and the east and West sort of resented each other was a, almost a kind of cold war going on between the two of them. And Alaric took advantage of that uh, big time. He learned that the Goths could be the tipping point in the balance of power between the two empires. And he served whichever one was convenient to him, had the most to offer him at the time. He was willing to push when he had to, but uh, you know, was willing to take the rewards when he could get them. But the barbarians were there from Rome's beginnings until its last days in power in the West. We're talking about 800 years of, of conflict and then a little peace and then more conflict? <laughs> well, it wasn't only, the conflict wasn't only with the barbarians. I mm. point out in the book, just in my time period, how many civil wars and changes of emperors there were. There was always rebellions going on. So the, the Romans did go out and they conquered, you know, France and Hispania and, and most of Britain. And they made citizens out of those uh, out of those barbarians. who They weren't barbarian af anymore after that. But Romans also fought Romans. We talk about the Roman civil wars between Julius Caesar and uh, or Antony and Octavian. Uh, but Rome experienced civil wars throughout its uh, throughout its time, particularly after in our in our period here not so much during the pax romana the 200 years of peace after octavian but things started to fall apart then and basically any any general who had enough troops behind him could say i am now emperor and if he won his the battles that were required 
he could be emperor. That's how a lot of them ended up that way. They uh, basically declared themselves and usurped the thrones and uh, carried on that way. So there were lots of power struggles. How much of it was also religious? Uh, how many? How, how much of were the power struggles? Uh, did they involve Christians and pagans? Uh, not only Christians and pagans, but uh, Christians and Christians. Christianity was still a young. This is uh, you know around AD four hundred. Christianity was still a young religion in that time period, and there were numerous different sects. I did, when I was writing the book, I hadn't even realized how many different uh, sects and, and uh, types types of Christianity were were flourishing back then. And of course, most of them regarded each other as heretics. Uh, and uh, it took a while in, in our in our time period of the book. You're actually seeing some of that get settled out where. A few of the church patriarchs are settling some of the questions uh, of religion, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and st stuff like that, and uh, declaring other ones heretics, and they're sort of thinning out the herd. There's sort of a Darwinian uh, evolution going on there as to which uh, version of Christianity is going to come out on top. For instance, the uh, Stilicho, we think, was a Nicene Christian, which is basically a Catholic, uh, but uh, Alaric and the Goths were, um, the, they were Aryan Christians. They basically believed that, uh, this is putting it very simply, but they basically believed that Jesus was mortal, uh, you know, a human, not, not, not divine, not ethereal. And, uh, of course, the Catholic Church considered that to be heresy. Uh, but at the same time, this was a very popular, popular religion. Emperor Valens, who I mentioned at the beginning of the book, was killed at Adrianople. He was an Aryan. He uh, he, he was the Eastern Roman emperor. The Eastern Roman emperor. He died in 378, right? Correct, correct. He was killed at the Battle of Adrianople mm. by the Goths, but they weren't fighting over religion. Uh, Valens was uh, had the same religion that they did, which was another reason why they should have gotten along. There was really they were really pushed into that battle. Uh, but as far as the, the two religions, the two dominant forms of Christianity were Arianism and uh, Catholicism. And uh, a lot of the story that goes on in the book is the subtext is the battle between those religions as well. But paganism was still, was still alive and well. A lot of the Roman senators were pagans. Uh, and the last, uh, the last pagan emperor uh, of the Western Emperor Eugenius uh, actually started out as a Christian but converted to paganism uh, because it served his purposes at the time. But he was uh, he was killed in battle by Theodosius at the Battle of the Frigidus River, which is where Alaric and Stilicho, who had been adversaries to that point, were actually brought together and fought on the same side for Theodosius at that battle. We'll get to that in a moment. So it's weird. So we have Christians. Who's uh, different people are in power at different times. We have a number of different Christian groups, and then we have people who still believe in the Roman gods. We do. Yes. The, as I say, most of the senators were still pagans, and uh, uh, Stilicho was a Christian. There's, there, there was a lot of tug of war going on there. Um, so Jupiter. A lot of. Right, right. At, at the Battle of Frigidus, uh, Emperor Eugenius actually had a statue of Jupiter uh, put up on the battlefield, and they flew flags of the of Hercules, who was a pagan demigod, a semi-god, uh, 
to uh, inspire his troops. And of course, Theodosius' troops, they had, they were waving crosses over their head. It was a, uh, the last showdown as far as the uh, imperial, imperial purposes. That was the last showdown between Christianity and paganism. The, the battle uh, was pretty, pretty decisive, and uh, you could actually almost see the hand of God in how it turned out. So it was a decisive blow for Christianity against paganism and pretty much put paganism out of the running for the rest of the time. Uh, Theodosius actually outlawed it not too long afterwards. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large at, on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Don Holloway. If if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, At the Gates of Rome, The Fall of the Eternal City, A.D. 410. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's Give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. Do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Don Holloway. Um, His book is published by Osprey. Uh, He's an author, illustrator, and historian. And his first book, The Last Viking... It's a history of King Harold Hardrada. He's Hardrada. On, yeah, did I say that? Harold Hardrada? Yep, Hardrada. Yep, Harold Hardrada. Oh, Hargada. Uh, Hardrada, right. H-A-R-D-R-A-D-A. Yep, just like it just says it's written. You're also a, a fencer? <laughs> did, is there a connection between <laughs> that? Well, I'm getting a little old for that now. It's uh, I was a fencer a few years ago, but it's been a while. I'm not even sure at which end of the sword to hold on to anymore. But uh, obviously it gives you some insight into the way they fought their battles at the time, doesn't it? It does. It does. You, you learn the individual tactics. My, uh, my expertise, I started out as a, as a, your typical fencer, you know, Olympic style fencer, although I was never, never anywhere near that. I was strictly beginner level, but then I had to, uh, my historical interests kind of leaned me towards rapier fencing, which is, uh, uh, like, uh, like three musketeers, those kinds of swords, bigger, bigger, longer, heavier, uh, but a whole different, uh, whole different way of using them. Uh, if you go and watch the three mus- any of the three Musketeer movies, the the way they fence that's strictly Hollywood. That it has very little to do with the way they actually did it back in those days. Uh, the real fights, you you basically stayed in one place and kept your sword out in front of you, waited for the other guy to give you an opening and tried to stab him. That's uh-huh. basically it. Uh, you know, the fights would last 
you know, maybe 60 seconds of really? everybody facing off. And at the end, bang, I mean, one or two seconds. And, you know, whoever gets a hit from one of those swords is uh, going to go down. Well, it's very different than Olympic sword fighting with Epe, right? Correct, correct. Uh, well, there's some there's some similarities. I think it's Epe where they say the best way to practice that is to pick up your sword and face a mirror and try to make the other guy move first. <laughs> and that's pretty, pretty much the way it is with rapier fencing. You're, you're basically just waiting for an opening to take advantage of. Let's get back to these two men who are at the center of your book, Flavius Stilico and Alar- Alaric. Or, uh, I always pronounce it Alaric. Alaric, okay. Well, Flavius Stilico dedicated himself to restoring imperial glory and uh, why was that a problem? Why did he have to struggle for his life against political foes as, as a result of that? I would have thought that, that um, most of the people involved would have wanted uh, to, uh, poli- <laughs> the uh, restoration of imperial glory. Well, most of them thought uh, imperial glory was up to them. They, they, they were all for imperial glory as long as they were in charge of it. Hmm. And Stilico saw himself as being the man who should be in charge of both empires. And a lot of people resented that and didn't want his interference. If I take you back uh, to the death of Emperor Theodosius, again, he has two sons, uh, the Emperor Arcadius in the uh, east, who is you know about 18 years old. He's of legal age. And in the west, you have uh, Honorius, who is still just a young boy at the time his father dies. And there's an important scene in the book which was one of the toughest ones to write because it's the scene where Theodosius basically uh, and supposedly, according to Stilicho, gave Stilicho the power of guardianship over both sons. And the great mistake that they made was that there was no witnesses to this. Stilicho went into the room where Theodosius lay dying. And when Theodosius was dead, Stilicho came out and said, I am now in charge of uh, the, the two young emperors and I am the power behind both thrones. And uh, that was all well and good in the West because Honorius did need someone, uh, you know, a foster father basically to, uh, to help guide him. But in the East, Arcadius was already, as I said, of legal age, and he was not interested. And particularly, he was rather weak-willed, but his counselors did not want Stilicho coming back East and trying to lay down the law over them. They were dead set against that. And uh, that's where most of the trouble arose. Uh, Stilicho sort of thought he should be in charge of both the empires. The East didn't want anything to do with that. And uh, a lot of the trouble that came down through the ensuing years was due to that. So was part of the problem that the empire was so huge and that uh, it was hard to uh, keep control of all, uh, all of it? So That's basically was what it happened. The, uh, thin? It was, the, was the military stretched a little too thin? The military was stretched thin, but there was also just a communications lag. I mean, you know, communications only traveled as fast as a horse or a ship. And uh, the Emperor Diocletian, uh, decades before this, decided that uh, the empire was simply too big for one man to handle. So he divided it into two. And actually, each each uh, each empire had two emperors: a senior emperor, the Augustus, and a junior emperor, the Caesar. 
who was supposedly to step into the senior spot when the elder emperor died. Uh, and so that's where we get the word August, little, right? Correct, correct. Uh, uh, Augustine, one of the one of the sources in the book, uh, Augustine, Saint Augustine, uh, all comes from the all comes from the same source. Alaric desired to be a friend of Rome, but he was betrayed by it and became its enemy. What happened? Well, now we're now we're getting down to it. As I said, uh, Alaric. Uh, he wanted to be Roman. His people wanted to be Roman. They were denied the opportunity, and Alaric learned how to play the two empires against each other. Uh, he would threaten one, you know, with claiming to have the backing of the other. Uh, the East generally let him uh, push him, push them around. Uh, he basically invaded Greece, which was part of the was part of the uh, Eastern Empire at the time. Uh, basically with Constantinople's permission, uh, the imperial court's permission, uh, and set himself up as basically an independent kingdom or himself as an independent king in uh, Greece, in northern Greece. So that's like middle ground between the two empires. And uh, whenever, whenever Alec wanted something, he knew which one to push and, you know, threaten the other one uh, and get his own way. Now, as time went on, Stilicho saw that Alaric could be a valuable ally against the Eastern Empire. All this time, Stilicho was still wanting to unite the empires, and he was actually going to enlist Alaric and the Gothic army uh, to help him take over Illyricum, which was the middle ground and had been part of the, had been part of the West, but had been given to the East in the, in the divisions. So they were about to attempt that when things really started to unravel in the Western Empire, there was rebellions up in Gaul, and Britain was being cut loose. They they couldn't do that anymore, and Stilicho kind of took his eye off the ball. He was more concerned with uh, attacking the East than preserving the West, and a lot of people resented that. And for his collusion with the uh, with the Goths, he was accused of treason and ultimately executed. There was kind of a palace coup, and he was killed. His wife was killed. His son was killed. Uh, his daughter, uh, his eldest daughter, had been married to Honorius. She had since died, but the, the younger daughter, she was the only family member that, that escaped that. Um, so Alaric now, he is left as the basically the last effective military commander in the West. And he offered to command Rome's legions against these usurpers up in, uh, and rebels up in France and, uh, and Britain. Uh, and Honorius, the emperor, who was uh, who was older now, uh, was kind of um, you know feeling more adamant about doing things his way, and he had an anti-barbarian biases bias as well, and basically told Alaric to go pound sand. And Alaric Alaric was still looking for the same thing that the Goths had always been looking for, which was just a place to settle down and Roman citizenship. And the after Stilicho was dead. He didn't really have anybody to back him up. There was a massacre in the cities of uh, Goths who were living in the cities. Uh, the women and children of uh, many of the Goths who had actually enlisted in the, um, the Roman legions. And when this happened, 30,000 Gothic legionaries joined Alaric. So now Alaric has, he's redoubled his problems. He has more people, more mouths to feed. Uh, he still is not getting on with uh, Honorius. And he basically came down and tried to use Rome, tried to hold the city hostage as a kind of bluff against Honorius 
you know, give me what I want and you can have your city back. But the problem was that Honorius, the capital wasn't in Rome at that time. The Western capital was in Ravenna and Honorius really didn't care about what was going to happen to Rome. He had a, he had a rooster that was named Rome and he was more worried about that than he was about the city itself. Uh, this went on for two years. The Roman, uh, the, the Goths laid siege to Rome three times in the course of this, this back and forth bargaining and Honorius basically didn't budge. Uh, there was some treachery going on. Some Goths were killed. And finally, it dawned on Alaric that the Romans are never going to see it his way. By this time, his people are outside the walls of Rome, and they're starving as well. Uh, inside the walls, the Romans are on the point of cannibalism. Things were, mm. things were so bad there because the Goths had basically cut off the Tiber River and were not letting any supplies in. And in the end, uh, the Goths were, they, they were never really adept at besieging cities in the sense of attacking and going over the walls. They would just shut it off and not let any food get in. And in the end, uh, some Romans, possibly some Goth infiltrators, basically just opened the Salarian Gate, the northernmost gate of Rome, and left the Goths come in. And uh, that was basically how it happened. That led to the, the sacking of Rome. Do you see any parallels between what happened then and what we're seeing today with Russia and Ukraine? Uh, boy, I got to talk carefully here. <laughs> because you know, we're talking about friends just, who then wind up fighting with each other. No? Okay, you don't uh, have to. There it's, are parallels. I don't, th- I, I don't think anybody can write about the, the fall of Rome without the without taking a look at the American empire, uh, mm. you know, I, I think there's obvious parallels there. Um, you have to be, you have to be, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. I think there are parallels between Rome and, uh, and the American empire. I don't go into it at length. I think my conclusions that I draw are basically like one or two paragraphs towards the end of the book. It has a lot to do with assimilation and uh, making everybody in America, American. Mm -hmm. Well, but there is a a lot of tension over that as well right now. Uh, You you can say what you want to say on this show. (laughs) (laughs) This is Free Speech Radio, (laughs) WBAI. And my guest, go ahead. You know, I... As I said, the basic fall, the basic reason, as I saw for the fall of Rome, was uh, the the sack of the city by unassimilated immigrants, and I I don't want to draw that conclusion too too strongly here, but that that that's the key is uh, not the problem is not immigration, it's assimilation. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Don Hallway. His latest book, At the Gates of Rome, The Fall of the Eternal City, A.D. 410, published by Osprey. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. So it's more complicated than just simply Alaric retaliating for the problems that uh, uh, he had faced. Uh, For example, um, the fact that his men were slaughtered after uh, Stilicho was was executed by his political rivals, and and retaliated by sacking Rome. There's a lot more complication there than that. 
There is. I mean, Alaric did not want to sack Rome. That was he wanted to avoid that. He was he was bluffing the entire time. He was threatening to sack Rome, uh, but did not want to do it. Uh, he actually told uh, uh, a monk along the road as he was marching towards Rome. The the monk pleaded with him, you know, don't sack Rome. And uh, Alaric Alaric said that he felt that there was a greater power than him driving him towards this. That it seemed like fate was fate was acting on this that uh, he didn't want to do it but it was it was going to have to happen and he basically had no choice at the end as i said his people outside the walls were starving nearly as badly as the people inside the walls but the sacking also uh, had some horrific sides for example weren't many women raped yeah, I, uh, that was another place that was, that was a little bit touchy to write about. Uh, the Romans, before, before this, Romans uh, treated rape victims uh, very badly. Uh, they, were, they were basically looked down upon as spoiled goods, if you will. Hmm. Uh, not saying that's right. I'm saying that's what they did in those days. But in, after the sack of Rome, so many Roman women had been raped that the problem had to be addressed by the church. Uh, and St. Augustine, uh, in one of his, uh, one of his first books actually devoted several chapters to that telling, telling these poor victims that, uh, what had happened to them was not their fault. And, uh, so you could really say that the sack of Rome not only changed Western political history, but it changed the history of the church as well, because the, uh, the, St. Augustine was a mover and shaker in the early church. And when he wrote down an opinion like that, I mean, that was, that was God's word sort of, and uh, it changed the whole way the church looked on things. Was life ever able to return to normal? For the Romans, uh, the population of the city dropped terribly in the, in the ensuing years. I think it dropped by half. Uh, I don't think half the people were killed at the time, but uh, the city was so badly torn up that um, a lot of the people moved out. And of course, uh, the barbarians were still swirling around. The vandals were moving down through France and, and Spain and over to North Africa. And a few decades after uh, the Goths were there, the Goths had moved to Spain, uh, the vandals came up and sacked Rome again, and they spent two weeks doing it. And of course, that's where we get our word vandalism is from what they did to Rome. I mean, they really destroyed the city. And uh, after that, uh, Rome was really never the same. I mean, the Roman emperors were basically just puppets put in place by the barbarian, the barbarians who were really running Italy at that time. Uh, Rome basically started falling into ruin. And within a few hundred years, Basically, the forum has grass growing up through the cracks in the pavement, and there, there are cows and sheep grazing in, in the forum, and that's where really where it fell down from there. And if you visit Rome today, you still see the results of that and the destruction of the Colosseum, for example. But what happened to the Roman legions that were stationed through, throughout the empire, for, in Britain, for example? Well, uh, I spoke of the rebels in the in Gaul and, and Britain uh, the last uh, rebel emperor who cropped up when uh, close to the close to this, this time in the 400s early 400s was Constantine the third and he was actually a, a, a Roman military commander in Britain at the time 
And of course, all this was happening down in Italy and the and Rome or Ravenna, the capital basically said to Britain, you know, we can't defend you anymore. You're on your own. The British Isles were under attack by the Irish pirates and the Picts who were living up in Scotland. And uh, the empire just couldn't keep up its defense anymore. And Constantine wasn't interested in defending it either. He basically pulled up stakes and took his troops to Gaul, uh, which felt the same about Rome. They, they were being cut loose as well. And when Constantine came in and said, you know, follow me, I'll defend you and I'll make me your new emperor, they joined him. So a lot of the legionaries uh, became rebels and uh, were, they were still Roman legions, but they were fighting for a different Roman emperor. And that's why we have Constantinople in the east? It is. That was the capital of the Eastern Empire. Uh, Which continued sort of, after uh, all of this. It did. That, it, it, it evolved into the Byzantine Empire, which lasted, well, another thousand years after this. But it was a different thing. That was, uh, that was basically a Roman bureaucracy with Greek language and customs. It was, it was different from the Roman Empire. Now, you mentioned that Stilicho was executed by his political rivals, but isn't it suspected that Alaric died of malaria? Was that a big problem they at the don't, time? They don't, know, they don't know exactly what he died of, but uh, it seems pretty certain that he died of malaria. After the sack of Rome, again, still looking for a homeland, uh, Alaric took his people south. His ultimate goal was probably to get to North Africa which was really the breadbasket of the Western Empire at that time. Uh, he had cut Rome off from the grain shipments from, from North Africa. Which, that's how he exploited that. So he saw that that was the key and wanted to take his people there. He marched down towards uh, Sicily, didn't cross over, but marched down into the southern part of Italy, hoping to get a fleet to take his people to North Africa. <coughs> Excuse me. But to get there, they had to pass through the Pontine Marshes, which were notorious for mosquitoes. I mean, even into the 20th century, uh, in the 1920s, there was a study done that said uh, it was a, you, the majority of people, like 80% of the people who spent one night in the Pontine Marshes came down with malaria. And of course, the Goths were a northern people. They, were, they had no resistance to malaria. And uh, just judging by the symptoms, my guess is that that's what Aller came down with. It's my sense that in the years that followed, and later we have the flowering of Florence and Venice, and then finally Rome again. Did it take Rome a long time to recover? Uh, when Gibbon got there in the 1700s, Rome was just about to, uh, to, to flourish again. The, in the Renaissance, uh, the, great, the great Italian cities were Florence and Venice, and Rome was sort of still a backwater. But as, uh, as the 17th century or 18th century started, uh, Rome really did mount a comeback and become a, became a great city again. I want to thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, we, uh, I've been talking with Don Hallway. Uh, his book, At the Gates of Rome, The Fall of the Eternal City, A.D. 410, is published by Osprey. And it's been a real pleasure having you here. I've been thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, 
You can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. Um, we're going through a rough time right now, and uh, we, <laughs> we have basic bills to pay and the like. And if you'd like to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., then we're asking you and all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. Well, we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you just don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, At the Gates of Rome, The Fall of the Eternal City, A.D. 410, by Don Hallway. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, which allows us to plan for the future because um, if you become a member for $10, $15, $20, whatever it is a month, uh, well, we know that we're going to at least have some income coming in in the near future. And we will say thank you with with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy, for $15 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on the support of its listeners. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us on uh, our show tomorrow. And my guest will be Jennifer Rapp, and she'll be discussing her new book, A Genetic History of the Americas. How did the indigenous people really come here? We'll see you then. <laughs>